Now we continue together this evening to look at the book of Romans, and we're coming a little bit closer to some of the fundamental issues in Romans tonight, and certainly by next time as we look to Romans, we will, we will be there. But we look tonight at verses 8 through 17 in sort of a broad survey sense, and then we're going to come back to verses 16 and 17 um, and look a little more uh, microscopically in the not-too-distant future, Lord willing. Let's briefly pray before reading. Our Father, this minister confesses that as he looks within his own heart, he longs for Christ and the gospel and for each of his sheep to know you. But there's still too much of me in me, Uh, too much pride, too much self, too much of my will, too much of my desire. I would ask, Heavenly Father, that you would enable me, as minister of word and sacrament, to be so filled with Scripture that the Scriptures would grow within my heart and that you would enable me to help this congregation to do the same that through the preaching and proclamation of your word and our living out the truths of Scripture daily, we would find ourselves growing and becoming more Christ-like day by day and moment by moment. Help us to truly love the Bible and to truly love the Christ who is revealed in the sacred Scriptures as the Redeemer of sinners. We have no other, and we confess before you that we are completely and utterly dependent upon Christ alone for our salvation. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, the great theme of the book of Romans. Hear our prayer. Open the word to us, we pray, for ultimately you are the great shepherd of the sheep. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Romans chapter 1, beginning with verse 8. This is the word of God. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome." For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Oh, as we turn to this first chapter of Romans, I'm just compelled to say what glorious things we find here, and to meditate upon the glory of the gospel The Apostle Paul can't even get through the first verse of Romans 1 without mentioning the gospel of God, and he has defined for us this great thing that Christ has done, how good the Lord is to us as people, as we've seen in these opening verses of Romans. There we've seen the humiliation of Christ, we've seen the exaltation of Christ, the Trinitarian nature of salvation, 
All of this done for our sakes, that we now may be called saints of God by the sovereign free grace of God. But now I would begin by drawing your attention to verse 9, in which Paul says, For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. We see Paul's passionate service. And as we look at this passage together tonight, we'll see something of what drove Paul. That's the question we want to ask. There's a passionate spirit in Paul's heart. Uh, he speaks here of the, um, the, the spirit in which he serves the Lord Jesus Christ, in which he serves the gospel of God's sovereign free grace. Well, from where did it come? What drove him? What motivated him? And what also should motivate us? in this great service to the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll note in, this, in these verses that we've read that Paul the Apostle is deeply emotional, that he has a, an, an immense love for the people of God. And remember, he's never seen them before. There may be a few people there that he knows as we come to chapter 16. We'll see that. But he doesn't know anybody, essentially, in this church. And yet he loves them because they are purchased by Christ's blood. He loves them. He has a passion to see them and to serve them. He treats them affectionately and with an open heart. He takes these strangers way down deep into his soul, and he longs to know them and to do something for them for their own growth in the grace and knowledge of Christ. So first of all, let's briefly look at Paul's heart. Again, verse 9, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. And the first thing that I think we see about Paul's heart or his service, of his heart of service, is that it was whole-souled. He kept nothing back. Uh, he was completely into it. Uh, he longed to serve. Whom I serve with my spirit. You can read that to mean whom I serve passionately. Whom I serve with all of my heart. Whom I serve in a whole-souled manner, no longer the old Pharisee with misplaced passion. Paul was met by the risen Christ on the Damascus Road. Everything changed for him. He did not serve by halves, but he poured his entire spirit into serving these Christians and to serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Because now he had seen Christ and he is serving in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. That's the first thing to note. He didn't serve by halves. It was whole-souled service. Ours should be as well, especially when we get to the answer of the question, why? Why did Paul serve this way? But notice also that his service, his heart, his service was worshipful in service. We find that actually in verse 9 when he says, For God is my witness, which is a mild oath, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. And the word that is used for serve here is the word latruo. The noun form is a, a word from which we derive our term liturgy. It was a word that indicated uh, uh, worship. It was associated with the idea of worship. So the Apostle Paul is not simply I, saying I serve in a whole-souled fashion. He's saying I serve worshipfully. I serve, as he says in verse 8, my God, or in verse 9, I serve God. I serve worshipfully. I, I serve devotedly. Uh, my heart is completely devoted to the Lord as I am devoted to you. I serve in such a way that I worship God in the service that I am offering uh, to you. 
And then notice that his service is gospel service, for he says in verse 9, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. His entire life is committed to this gospel. Now he knows Christ, the risen Lord. How could he not? He was the chief of sinners, he tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 1. But God had come to him and has done this great thing, opened his heart, showed him his need, saved him from his sin, so that his service is whole-souled, worshipful, and filled with gospel service. But notice also that the service that he offers to the people of God, his heart is a prayerful service, a prayerful heart. For he says in verses 9 and 10, "'For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always,' That is to say, constantly, with regularity, always, in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. So his service was prayerful service. He was a praying apostle, and he prayed for these people. He was on his knees. He cared about them. I've always been moved by the way in which Paul spoke of prayer in Ephesians 3, Uh, verses 14 and 16, when he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Isn't that a remarkable prayer? Now, I think that we pray for one another, and we often pray for one another, focused upon physical ailments. And that's good. We really should do that. But the, the prayers of the Apostle Paul are really great models for how we should pray for the church, for the spiritual strength, for the, the growth, for the maturity of the people of God. He prays for them in ways that are kingdom-related and kingdom-oriented. And as we move actually on in 1 Timothy, next time we'll see what some of that prayer should look like for the world around us as well. So it's prayerful service. But also Paul's heart is motivated, moved with a submissive service, a submissive kind of service. For he says in verse 10, "...always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will..." I may now at last succeed in coming to you. So in other words, Paul is saying, I have a longing. I really desire to see you. I've never met you before, brothers and sisters, but I love you, and I want to come and meet you. I want to share communion with you. Uh, I want to to, uh, mutually be mutually benefited uh, by the sharing of faith one with another. Uh, I want to, to know you as a church. I want you to know me as well. But he says... Maybe not. That is to say, if God wills, I will come to you. So at the end of Paul's thinking was always DV, Deo Volante, if God wills. If the Lord makes this happen, if he opens the door, then I will come. Ultimately, my service to the church, says Paul the Apostle, is submitted to the recognition that God in his providence is the God who directs and the God who withholds and the God who channels, and the God who moves, all ministry is in his hand. I want to come if God will make it possible. But also his service, his heart, 
is a generous heart filled with generous service. For in verse 11, he says, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Now, he desires to come in order that he may serve them. He wants to strengthen them. And he says in verse 13 that he wants a harvest among them. Notice how he puts it there. I want you to know, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. William Hendrickson points to Paul's modesty here. Uh, What a rich and abundant harvest God had given Paul among the Gentiles. All of these Gentiles brought out of darkness, uh, of the darkness of heathendom, into the kingdom of God, uh, but he wants some, some fruit there in Rome also. But behind it all was gratitude. Notice in verse 8 how he began the discussion. For I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now, when we get to a latter, the latter part of Romans 1, we'll find that ingratitude is a, sheer, a, a sure mark of unbelief, a sure mark that a person does not know the Lord, a heart that is filled with ingratitude. But Paul constantly speaks of gratitude. He doesn't even know these people personally, but he thanks God because their faith is proclaimed throughout all the world. Now, let me tell you why I think this is remarkable. Where is Paul when he writes the book of Romans? You remember? He's in Corinth. He's in Corinth. And if you, on some occasion, will go to the 20th chapter of the book of Acts, you'll see that the Jews are planning to kill him. He is in a very tense situation. This is not an easy time for him. The Jews are planning to kill him, but where is Paul's mind? It's in Rome. It's with this church. The Jews are planning to kill him. What is his passion to serve the church? The Jews are planning to kill him, but what is filling his heart? It's love for these Christians whom he had never even met. That's his heart, filled with gratitude. Here he is grateful for people. He's planning to see them and desires to take the gospel all the way to Spain. He's not so concerned with the Jews' plan to kill him. He's always thinking ahead about how he can serve because his heart is filled with gratitude for what God has done for him. Now, surely, some of Paul's great heart shows through here. His ability to focus away from himself, even in dire need, and to be grateful to God for others. And I can learn from this, and so can you. Because when I go through hard things, it is a very difficult thing, tell me if it's not with you, to focus upon me, my circumstances, how hard things are, and it's easy to forget about other people. The Apostle Paul goes through the depths. The Jews are about to kill him. He seems very unconcerned about it, and he's thinking about how he can serve these people in Rome. I find that to be remarkable and truly wonderful. How is that possible? It's a heart that has been set free from focus upon self and by the gospel of the free grace of God. Notice, by the way, in passing the reason that he's thankful. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. This is verse 8. Because your faith is proclaimed through all the world. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones had something so wonderful to say about this that I'm going to bring it to you. Lloyd-Jones said, They had not got newspapers. They had not got telegrams or telephones. 
I guess today we'd say they didn't have iPods and all the rest. They had no radio or television, no press agencies or any advertising agencies, and yet the news had spread through the whole world of the Roman Empire in this way. What a lesson on church publicity. How did it happen, do you think? Uh, Why was this spoken of throughout the whole world? How did it become known? My dear friends, the answer is a very simple one. A revival never needs to be advertised. It always advertises itself. You do not need to advertise the work of the Holy Spirit. It is its own advertisement. Read the history of the church. When revival breaks out in a little group, it does not matter how small the news spreads and curiosity is awakened and people come and say, what is this? Can we participate in this? How can we get hold of this? Man does not need to advertise it. It becomes known. It spreads throughout the whole world. It had happened here. This is revival. This is Pentecost. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. And the news had spread like wildfire in that ancient world with its poor means of communication and its absence and lack of advertising media. Isn't it time we began to think in New Testament terms, my friends? When the Holy Spirit enters and does His mighty work, it inevitably and always becomes known. God spreads it. He has done it in every revival throughout the centuries. He does it still. He always will do it. Oh, that the church would concentrate on experiencing the power of the Holy Ghost. Believe me, that when the Holy Ghost descends into a single heart or into a group of people in power in a most amazing manner, in a manner that no one can understand, the news will go and spread and hearts will be kindled and people will make journeys. They will want to get near it. They will want to partake of it and to participate in it. I thank my God through Jesus Christ that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. He goes on to say, Christianity was advertised in the first century at the very beginning simply by the lives and living of Christian people. Oh, that it might happen like that again. Are you advertising Christianity? Is your faith spoken of? Do they speak of it in your home? Do they speak of it in your office? Do they speak of it in the works the factory, wherever you are, is your faith spoken of? Does it lead to rejoicing? Does it lead to questioning? Does it lead to inquiry? Is it drawing somebody to try to discover what it is and how is it to be obtained? Oh, that we may know and experience grace and the peace of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ to such an extent that our faith will be spoken of throughout the whole world and thereby God will be glorified and many drawn to Him. And when I read those words, I felt on the one hand that I could rejoice, and on the other hand, I felt deeply convicted, and rightly so. Lord, is that my life? Is that my heart? Is that what's happening around me? Is that what is happening with us? Oh, may we pray that the Holy Spirit will so work in our midst that our faith will be known throughout Lakeland, throughout Florida, throughout the states, throughout the whole world. Will you pray that way? because it will honor the Lord Jesus Christ. Gratitude. Gratitude for their faith, spoken of throughout the whole world. Well, we're coming closer to Paul's heart and to the answer what drove Paul, but next we see, secondly, this. Paul's sense of obligation. So he has this heart. He has this uh, profound desire to serve. He's He's a devoted man. But also coming along with that heart is a sense of obligation, We read of it in verse 14. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, 
both to the wise and to the foolish. Uh, The Greeks, he's saying Gentiles, uh, that is to say the Greek-speaking peoples. Greek had spread throughout the world, was the lingua franca. The Apostle Paul writes his epistles in Greek, and they are a delight to read, or at least to attempt to read. And uh, he speaks of Greeks and barbarians. Barbarians, uh, for a Greek, a barbarian was someone who was unlearned, uncouth, basically not Greek. Um, The word barbarian probably came from the fact that they didn't speak Greek and it sounded like bar, 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 babbling to them rather than Greek. So what he's saying here basically is this. I'm obligated, whether the man is learned or unlearned, whether he's Greek, whether he is barbarian, no matter who he is, the gospel is for everyone. I'm a debtor. Because of what God has done for me in saving my soul, I'm a debtor to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to others and preach it throughout the world, even to those who are in Rome. God called Paul, and now he was the servant of everybody He wanted to preach the gospel to as many people as he possibly could. And not only that, this this is so wonderful, he says in verse 15, that he's eager to do it. He says, I am eager, look at verse 15, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. You've just got the the picture of this guy that you can hardly hold back. He he feels this obligation to preach throughout the, the known world. And you, you can't hold this man back. He, he wants to get out there and preach the gospel. He is so eager. He must have been eager. He was willing to be shipwrecked at least four times that we know of. He was willing to be beaten and stoned. Nothing kept this man down. Amazing. Uh, just an amazing man, an amazing truth, an amazing sense of call. He was eager to preach the gospel anywhere and everywhere to anyone, Greek, barbarian, didn't matter to Paul, just bring them on so that I can preach the gospel to them. Call before his bishop, one evangelical preacher in the 18th century in that great revival in England, was called on the carpet by his bishop because he had to answer the question why he was preaching in times that uh, were not permitted by the church. Uh, Now, in the Anglican church in that day, there were such strange rules. You could only preach the gospel in certain places, and you could only preach at certain times. Of course, the gospel was very little preached in the Church of England then, but God brought this great revival. He raised up preachers, and these were men you couldn't keep down either, and they were eager to preach the gospel anywhere and everywhere. So he's there before his bishop. He's being called on the carpet. And the bishop says, you've been preaching all over the place. You've been preaching whenever you want to. How many times do you preach? And the preacher said, only two times. Wait a minute. I hear you're preaching all the time. You're preaching constantly. I hear you're just preaching everywhere you possibly can. Oh, I'm, I'm just preaching two times, said the preacher. What two times, said the bishop? In season and out of season. That's Paul, in season, out of season, large groups, small groups, people that would listen, people that wouldn't listen. It didn't matter to him. He would preach because it's doxological and he was honoring the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we need that kind of mindset. The Apostle Paul was blessed with great success in the gospel in some places. In other places, people weren't converted at all, or if so, very few. For example, in Acts 17 in Athens... 
Uh, we read um, of very few converts there, but he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. So within our spheres of usefulness, we also have an obligation. We have an obligation to our children, to our families. We have an obligation to those to whom we're close or those that in God's providence are brought unto, into, our, into our lives. And Paul just puts it so strongly, I'm a debtor. Now, what's a debtor? A debtor is somebody that owes something, right? So that's what Paul is saying here. I owe it. I'm a debtor. This gospel is such a privilege. I've been given this gospel to preach, and it's wrong for me to keep it to myself. I need to take this gospel and tell other people about it. I'll never forget hearing uh, Dr. Ferguson, Sinclair Ferguson, When I was a student at Westminster Seminary in my first year, Dr. Ferguson came, joined the faculty, uh, became the professor of systematic theology. We became fast friends. I would take him to school every morning, and he he and his family lived near us. We would drive his family to church, and it was just a a wonderful, wonderful thing. And uh, it was interesting to hear a lot of Dr. Ferguson's personal stories. In his early ministry in Scotland... Dr. Ferguson ministered in the most northerly part of Great Britain. Now, go to Google, put in the Isle of Unst, and you can find it there. I mean, it's so far up, you can hardly see it on the map. Put in images, and you'll see some beautiful, beautiful pictures. The Isle of Unst. He was His Majesty's chaplain on the Isle of Unst. Very few people there that he was preaching. That was his first ministry. And uh, he would describe it, and if you see the pictures, it's certainly true, a wild and bleak place. But it was known for its wildlife, especially for its bird life, and people would come and they would take their binoculars and they would look at the birds. But if you weren't careful on the Isle of Unst, you could be walking along and there were these sheer drops. You could just drop right off the cliff. Dr. Ferguson said, if you were an inhabitant of the Isle of Unst and you saw one of these bird watchers moving around and you knew that he was about to drop off a cliff, wouldn't you say to him, beware, beware? You would owe it to him. Now that's what Paul is saying here. There are all these men that are about to drop off the cliff into eternity. I have the gospel, I owe it. To them, Oh, that my heart were more captivated by this. Pray for me that it will be, and yours too, uh, that we would take the gospel to men and women who are about to drop over the cliff because we owe it to them. I am a debtor, says Paul the Apostle. Now we come to it. We come, I think, to... That reality which drove Paul's spirit, gave him longing for believers in Rome, an eager spirit to preach, love for the souls of men, so that he wants not only to come to Rome, but from Rome, he wants Rome to be his home base to go to Spain. He tells us that in the epistle. I showed it to you in the first sermon. So this is the third thing we see. What is it then that drove his spirit? What is it that motivated Paul? Well, you know the answer. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ but especially the core of the gospel, which is justification by grace through faith alone. So look again at verse 16, verse 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live 
by faith. Paul was utterly captivated by the gospel of Christ. And we can only give a sketch of these verses now. We'll be coming back to them. But notice, first of all, that Paul is so motivated that he speaks of not being ashamed of the gospel. Now, that's a figure of speech called litotes. Litotes really means understatement. When he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, what Paul really means is, I'm ecstatic about the gospel. I can't contain myself over the gospel. I just can't help myself in preaching the gospel. I have to tell it out. That's what he's saying. It's just, it's like a, it's like a Brit. You know, if you're, if you're in Britain, they say all of these wonderful, exciting things in this understated way. Well, that was Paul. Uh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, meaning I just am ecstatic about the gospel. Because you see, he says, it's powerful. It's the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. Take a moment to listen to what the Apostle Paul says about the power of the gospel in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. There he reflects in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and following on this powerful gospel. And he says in verse 18, this is 1 Corinthians 1, 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. You see the expression, the power of God? For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly or foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now that's power. What's the power of which he speaks in 1 Corinthians and here also in Romans? It's the power of the gospel when the Spirit of God attends it, to do what God is doing in the world, which is calling out a people unto His name. Now that's the point. Paul went everywhere preaching the gospel because he knew that God had a people and that through that gospel he intended to draw a people out for His name. And for them, the gospel is an irresistible draw, an irresistible power. It is an irresistible grace. The aim is salvation. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation, the very thing we need. Salvation, that's the aim for the Jew and for the Greek. Its reception, he says, is by faith. Why by faith? Because we read in Romans 4.16, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace. Because faith is itself a grace. It only is an instrument of reception. Faith adds nothing. It contributes nothing. It simply receives. The gospel then reveals justifying righteousness. So he says in verse 17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now this is what drove him. This is the point. This is the core of Paul's gospel message. That sinners have by their sin lost all righteousness, that sinners in God's court of law are totally unacceptable and condemned. How then can it be proclaimed 
that once again sinners may be accepted by God in his court of law only by the imputation of righteousness. This righteousness, spoken here of as God's righteousness, which does not mean God's attribute of righteousness, but it means righteousness that is, that is compatible with God's holy and just requirements. Not an infusion of righteousness within, but a declaration about us, an imputation of righteousness. So here we have the great doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, through the work of Christ alone, which Luther says is the standing or falling doctrine of the church. It's the very core of the gospel message. If you don't understand that, you don't understand what the gospel is all about. Imputed righteousness. So we will return to that next time. But do you see what stirred Paul's spirit? Do you see what drove Paul's life? Do you see what enabled him to love these people so that he longed and was eager to preach the gospel to them? Do you see why he was willing to be shipwrecked? Do you see why he was willing to be stoned? Do you see why he was willing to undergo all manner of deprivation? Uh, Do you see what stirred his heart? Do you see why in another place he says, the love of Christ constrains me? Well, it's because... Paul had the message that people needed, and that message is this, lost, undone, condemned, poor sinner, if you put your faith in Jesus, you will be saved. Lost, undone, condemned sinner, if you put your faith in Jesus, a righteousness that is completely perfect, wrought by Christ on the cross, will be imputed to your account, and you will be received in 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 terms of justice, you will be received as if you were God's Son Himself. Now, that's good news. And that's the message that we have here. You have it, I have it, we know it. And I think we hoard it. (laughs) It's so easy for us And we should, to enjoy the message, to find our peace in the message, to find our assurance in the message, but to forget that all around us are people who have never even heard it, more so than ever. When I was a boy, most people in my community had heard the gospel. Can't say that today. So let's take it out there. And if you are here tonight and you're lost My friend, let me show you this love that Paul shows to these people by calling you to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Make a mistake here, and and it's, it's a fatal mistake. Attempt to put your faith in something else, someone else, your own works, your own righteousness, and that will be a fatal, fatal mistake. For Paul says, the just shall live by faith, not works of your performance, And to be accepted by God, you need a righteousness that meets the demands of God's law. And where is that to be found? My friend, that is to be found in Christ alone. In Christ alone. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.